0: Welcome to the Founders Edition. We mic up with founders, investors, and advisors behind the most successful software companies on the planet. We are here to showcase the most effective mechanisms for sales go to market and dispel the myths around the best practice for the modern world. We are Hunters
1: and Unicorns. Welcome to Hunters and Unicorns, the Founders Edition. Today, we welcome Jeremy Burton. Jeremy is currently the CEO of Observe Inc., a Sutter Hill Ventures-backed startup disrupting the observability market. A company he joined in its infancy, having worked closely with Mike Spizer. Prior to Observe, Jeremy was on the board of directors at Snowflake, having previously taken executive positions at Symantec, EMC and Dell, where he was recognized by Forbes as the number one CMO on the planet. In this episode, we discuss how to get to customers before your product is ready, getting to product market fit in a crowded market, making your first marketing hire and the relationship between sales and marketing, the technology versus value conundrum, and the reality of the founder's grind from an experienced campaigner. This is his playbook. And it's an absolute pleasure to be joined by... Jeremy Burton. Jeremy, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you guys. Great to be on.
1: It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show today, Jeremy. By way of an introduction, you're currently CEO of Observe Inc., a very disruptive uh, Sutter Hill Ventures-backed startup in the observability space, a market which is very saturated. There are lots of established players and yet you have real ambitions to go and disrupt this established market. And that's really where we want to start the conversation today is, uh, as, as a startup, really trying to compete, what's the reality of that? And what's your experience been in that in that effort to really kind of dislodge a very established market in this way?
2: Yeah, there's um, a lot to that one. I think the, the good thing about um, a market with a lot of competitors is you know that it's already an established market with a lot of money being spent today. And I think at, at times, certainly in Silicon Valley, people are enamored with, you know, creating a new market um, or, or creating a new thing. And in, in reality, that is one of the hardest things to, to ever do. Right? It it is much easier to attack Profit pools of an existing market than it is to create a brand new market where there there aren't there isn't existing spend there isn't an a, a existing buyer. So although it's it's very difficult, um, I think certainly in enterprise software that there are there are no established markets where there's no competition. You're always going to run into someone, and so the key thing then is um, what, what's the point of entry? Um, you, you know, if there's if there's spend today, what are you going to go do differently? Um, in order to take that spend away from them. And if you can't answer that question with conviction, you probably don't have a business because, yeah, you know, we can poke fun at bigger companies and, and they don't move as fast, but they, they've got established buyers. They've got market presence. They've got like a big distribution channel and, and you have to respect that. Um, and so for us, um, our disruptive change was, was, A couple of things really um you know i've been on the board of snowflake for the last eight years and and seen their rise as a company and uh i I can remember sitting in board meetings thinking this is going to be as big as oracle back in the day I, i was at oracle in the formative parts of my career and anyone who built a great application on top of oracle did well you know why because you know oracle did something unique Um, In the database world, you know, it was really the first uh, database on distributed systems and they had, you know, very granular control over how they managed the data, which meant it it was the best at online transaction processing. And so if you built an application on top of that, you had an advantage. And so I was sort of thinking even long before I joined Observe, it'd be great to be at a company that was building on top of Snowflake. Um, Why? Because it is disruptive in the market. It's a new architecture and they're doing things that you just couldn't do with a a database uh, five, ten years ago. Um, So when Observe came along, although observability, I guess some would say it is a new market, but really it is a coming together of three existing markets. Um, Log analytics, of of which, you know, someone like Splunk is the leader. Um, Infrastructure monitoring, which uh, I think Datadog is probably the leader an application performance management which you know we could debate but but New Relic is is probably the most well known at least if not the the undisputed leader. Um our belief is that those three discrete markets are going to collapse into into one. And so the TAM is huge. Um but you have to have like a disruptive change if you're going to go to someone who has you know years and years and years of sweat equity invested in something like a Splunk how how are you going to convince them that they need to change? And now is the t- you know, kind of the why now question, and, uh, and 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 sort of why observe and and you know for us it's it, it's a better way to troubleshoot your applications, but also economically um, it, it's a step function change, and and some of that or much of it is brought about by the architecture that Snowflake brings. So having something you know very different um as a part of your offering it, it, you can't enter a crowded market without that people won't pay attention
1: it's really interesting obviously in order to go and be able to to start taking share you have to come with enough artillery enough 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 um features or capability for customers to even start listening or or paying attention so what was your process? What were your initial steps in order to really kind of break through that and 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 get to the point where you are today
2: yeah it's a it's a great question because um back in twenty seventeen even early twenty eighteen we had the founding team and they were trying to figure out which functionality to build first i mean I said earlier, there are three markets coming together so you you we're not competing with one company. We're essentially competing with three, but do you, do you go after log analytics and Splunk first, uh, do you go after monitoring first? Do you go, do you go after tracing first? And, um, when I first arrived, the team, they were sort of barreling down this path of, of, uh, distributed tracing, You're building, you know, building your first, like a next generation, APM tool for, for, for one of a better description. And, um, I was like, huh, interesting. and you know, the founders, that that they're all super smart engineers, right? And, you know, I can't argue technically with them about the relative merits of going down APM versus log analytics and Google were building this new thing called open tracing and it was going to be the next big thing and we should go do that. And so my, my value add when I came in the door was, well, that all sounds great. Why don't we talk to some prospective customers about this? And they were like, well... You know jeremy we we don't have a product i'm like that's fine we can say whatever we want then you know we can just make something up we can go pitch folks and we can gauge their reaction to what we're saying and um i mean this is where i've been in and out of marketing over the years this is where some of that comes into useful I've, you know in enterprise software you you become very good at um, making news out of things that don't exist <laughs> And and so it was it's like the perfect training for an early stage startup. It's like we don't have anything. Okay, we need a pitch. Um, okay, let, let let's make up a pitch. And anyway, we, we did about fifty customer calls or customer, um, fifty people who might be interested in something we didn't have. And but what came out of that was actually precious because we we, we found one guy who was using a distributed tracing library out of fifty. And and so my conclusion out of this was like, guys. This tracing thing sounds interesting, and it might be the next big thing. But if we go down that path, we're, we're on this sort of evangelical sale. We're on a religious crusade. We're not. We're not building a company. And like a lot of these cr- religious crusades in history, they they can end in sort of lots of death and destruction. Um, um, but what you know, what we did find out was that people had trouble with their login environment. It was too expensive. People had trouble with with monitoring. And and so I was like, well, look, what, why don't we start with the logging end of things? That seems like a real pain point today, and go from there. And and, and in fact, the one liner that we had for our 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 our, our, uh, our alpha product was um, sort of Splunk on Snowflake with things, and the, the the things were were obviously things that Splunk didn't have. But it was that simple. It was like you know, let let's get let's just see if we can do that. Um, a, like a better architected log analytics tool built on top of Snowflake. And we didn't know at the time, by the way, that we could actually build the product on Snowflake. We thought we could. We had a couple of early Snowflake engineers who thought we could, but we didn't know. And that was one of our biggest areas of technical risk. And And so if we'd taken on that technical risk and had the market risk of uh, not meeting or uh, not, not being able to find people who wanted to go full distributed tracing at that point, I mean that that could have been catastrophic because you know you've spent your series A you've got nothing to show for it like where do you go from there
1: Yeah speaking to founders a, a lot of founders obviously do go and chase they 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 try and sell solutions that they think their customers need right rather than mm-hmm. really understanding Rather than understanding what they need, they try and solve their technology issues, right? So, so just just talking talking to them in terms of you know what your experience was in going through that, and really kind of thinking about what the customer really kind of needs, understanding the buy the customer's buying process, and really kind of baking that in. What what, what can you t- what can you say about that?
2: Yeah, I think you know what the hard thing for founders is particularly the you know folks with a predominantly engineering background um they spend their day and night thinking about a particular space and a particular problem and how to technically solve it and they are you know often years ahead of even early adopters in terms of their thinking and they're light years ahead of the mass market right and and the way to think about it is You've got to build a product that will be adopted by the mass market. Otherwise, you don't have, a, in my opinion, a good business. You have a niche business at best, um, or you have a business with specialists. or you, you know. Um, but if you really want to um, you know, take a company public, you're building a product for tens of thousands of companies. Not tens of companies, not thousands of companies, tens of thousands of companies. And they just don't have the level of understanding or knowledge about a product that like any founder would have. So th- there is an element here where you, you've got to meet the customer where they are today. You've got to understand what's their established workflow. Quite often, they, they don't live and die for your product. They, they have a job. And what you're doing is providing, in our case, you're providing tooling to help them do their job. They're just trying to get through the day. And if you have them jump through hoops in your great technical idea of how they might want to reinvent their job, there's going to be too much friction in the sales process. um, And and, and the adoption of the product is going to suffer. You, You might do well early on. You might be able to find a champion, a risk taker. You might be able to spend hours with that process. You might be able to overwhelm them with your SEs and get them to love the product, but Getting broader adoption within an organization or within the market um there's there's you've got to limit the amount of friction and that often means you've got to meet the customer where they are that means you you've got to listen to what their job is and what they're trying to do even if that means putting some of your uh like better smarter technical ideas to one side um and i and I feel like you know with observe as as, as much as um, you know i'm i've had quite a good career in enterprise software and quite experienced we've made those mistakes you you get the product a little bit to what I call a little bit too inside out you know all, all the the things that we think are great you put them on show for the customer and it confuses them they 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 don't get it um, and then if you're trying to swap out an incumbent they gradually go back to the incumbent because it's what they know might not be better might not be cheaper but it's what they know and it helps them get through the day and so you got to pay i think very close attention to like what is the customer saying what is the customer doing and at times you know have that rule the day versus the technical feature or the way you think you ought to solve the problem um, you need the disruptive change You you need to have a core differentiator but but even that's not enough right if you're to get sales productivity where you want it to be you know you you need less friction in the sales process that's removing objections in front of the customer
0: do you do you think you find yourself in a bit of a unique position you know working with the sutter hill you know way against conventional um, you know, venture capitalist and working with early stage, first time founders, where you can be a lot more subjective, um, and probably less attached to the product and more into what the mission is.
2: Yeah, I think I think the quality investors is always an advantage. Um, you, you know, there's uh, I, I like many do laugh at many of the VCs that you see online, and they're great advice. Um, but I think. With Sutter, and particularly for me, I mean, I I have quite a history with with Mike Spicer, and I I know he understands enterprise software. Um, I know he's a long-term guy, right? Um, He's playing for the big win. He's not playing for singles. And for me, it's like, okay, enterprise software is not easy. It is a long journey. I, I knew that when I signed up for it. Nothing happens quickly, right? And and so you need investors with that mindset. And there's gonna be bumps in the road along the way. And um it's not just the challenge of sort of technically building the product to be competitive. The go-to-market is <laughs> is not trivial either. I mean, we're in a situation now, we're having, you know, quite a good year. We're we're ramping the sales team. We we've hired 15 reps this year, right? That's four and a half million dollars of expense that we brought on board that will get nothing for this year. Um, the last thing you want is once you've made that investment, um, investors to get cold feet. You know, I'm not sure second-guess you. Um, it, it, I think it's already very, very difficult as as not just a CEO of a, a small company, like a, a C.M. Keith, our CRO. Um, it, 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 it's, uh, you're, you're sort of over your skis. Um, we, we're having a good year, we've got work to do in the product, we think we can get the work on the product done to meet the ramp of the sales team, but it's pretty high stakes, you've got to get all of these things right in order to be successful, and investors that are skittish um, and, and and want to try and turn the bus sort of mid-corner, they don't help, right, and, and most of them haven't run a business in years, and yeah, I mean, the Sutter the, the model, it's long term, there is a playbook, right? We're attacking a big market, it's high technical risk, uh, it's low market risk. So we know if we build something that is disruptive, there's an existing market there for us to get after. The, the process is to listen intently to the sales team, uh, use the sales team as product management, which I, I guess sounds weird for many, but it's only up until recently that we had more than one product manager right? We in the entire company. And we we had 25 people in you know, sales SEs and, and data engineering. Why? Because, well, the salespeople are there to tell us why the product isn't selling. We don't need a product manager to help us do that. We need them to prioritize, that person, Ross, to prioritize the backlog. What order do we need to build these things? And, and technically, how do we solve the problem that the salespeople are reporting? You know, salespeople are not there to tell us what to build. They tell us they're there to tell us why the product isn't solving the customer's problem and and what that problem is. And so that structure, I think, like like anything in life, um, that there is certainly a lot of creativity in startups, and there's a lot of seat of the pants, and there's uh, you know a lot a lot of um, you know sort of uh, tying your stomach in knots. But it is much more reassuring when there's sort of a framework behind it. Like, how do I know we're on track? Are we generally heading in the right direction? And a lot of that is laid out by by Mike for us. You know, he, he's got a process. Um, does vary from company to company, but generally that's the process you follow. And, and I think if you fail to follow the process, then your chances of success um, diminish.
1: Obviously, we are hoping to get Mike on the show at some point in the, in the not so distant future. But I suppose in terms of kind of laying out just a few of the kind of the, the tenets of that, you know, some of the axioms of that, what, what are they just as a kind of a, a, a basic framework to, to, to as an introduction?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think first thing is uh, attacking and attack a big, a big existing market. Big, you want big profit pools to attack um you may have the best product in the world but if it's in a tiny market it doesn't matter Uh, best you're going to get acquired for a few hundred million dollars you're a feature not a company right and 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 it's sort of brutal to say but you know i I don't believe that it's it's less work to work at a company that attacks a small market versus a big one i think it's the same amount of work regardless and so if you're going to spend your time working on something Work for a big prize, not a small one. Um, and so that, that, I think, is, is, is fundamental. So, so low market risk. If we build something, it's not a religious crusade. We don't need to preach our religion. Come to, a, come to the Church of Observe, right? There are people already going to this church, right? And, and so it, it's like, okay, great. And, and then high technical risk. If anyone can build it, you don't have a moat, right? You've got no defenses. If anyone can build it, all they've got to do is the the next guys have got to do is build it and hire a sales team. And boom, I guess I guess there's no differentiation there. So the high technical risk means that um, you're going to solve the problem in a unique way. You're going to solve it in a different way that nobody else has solved it uh, in in before. And and those two together are, are pretty magical because you've got huge market. You've got a new way of solving the problem. That makes it more productive, lower cost you know, for those very buyers. Um, and then, you, you, okay, so now you've got the idea going. W- when you get your first um, or you're close to your, what your initial product, I, I mean, I, I, was, I think me and Mike went back and forward on this for a while. He was like, hire a CRO. You need a CRO. And I was like, eh, <laughs> we don't have much of a product. He's like, doesn't matter. Like, you need to try and sell it. And I think often early on, founders are like, okay, I know a guy who will give this a road test and tell us what's wrong. No, like friends and family, they don't really test the product out. Like you need someone who's paying money. And I I, I do think one of the great skills of, of any salesperson is to extract money from a prospect. And once someone's paid for the product, they're in a completely different frame of mind. They expect something. And so if, if what they got doesn't match their expectation, which inevitably it won't, you're going to get feedback, right? They're, they're going to tell you how bad the product is or what it's missing. And, and that's the precious information. And I feel like a big part of my job then is I've got to create an environment where a guy like Keith and, and, and his team can, can come back to engineering and be brutal about what's not working. Like, what problem are we missing? Um, it could be anything from how we're talking about the product to what the product does to what we're missing. But how do you have an environment where he can be very, very open with what the feedback is? An engineering's response is is not, you know, sell around it or, <laughs> you know, the, I've heard of uh, all of them over the years. But, but okay, um, let's try and really understand what the sales team are saying. Let's translate that into maybe features that we would need to solve those problems. And then let's prioritize that backlog. And then, oh, by the way, we're going to validate with the sales team. Hey, if we build this, these are the kind of things that you think are going to be acceptable. Right. Um, and, and that, that collaboration between engineering and, and, and sales, I mean, it's sort of often said, but rarely done. Well, I feel like that is the job of the CEO right i mean you, you you have to create an environment where it's acceptable to to sort of call the call the baby ugly um and then the you know for the salesperson's part it, it's like okay give you feedback but we're on the same team right this is not this is these are not fatal problems and it's software we can fix anything um so there's got to be an environment where the feedback is very very honest um it's acted on quickly because I do think one of the differentiators you have as a startup is you can move much faster than bigger companies and you can impress the hell out of a customer with that. And and by the way, you're asking those early customers to bet on you and and responsiveness is, is, is a weapon. Um, but that environment between sales and engineering, I'd say is, is absolutely critical. If you, if you don't have that, you can't be successful in enterprise software.
0: Jeremy, you've, 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 covered, um, product. you've covered covered obviously sales, obviously as an award-winning CMO, you know, when, when does marketing come in and, you know, w- what can you give any startup advice on, on marketing?
2: Yeah, it, it, it's, a, it's a good question. I, I, I think early on, um, marketing is about demand creation, right? You, as a marketer in an early stage company, if if you're not doing it for the head of sales, don't do it because you're going to get fired. Um, and I think I, I've seen folks hire CMOs early, get into branding and all this crap that you don't need. Like t- two things which I think are critically important um, message, differentiated message, by the way, because that's what your salespeople are taking to the customer and then demand creation. How do we how do we help the sales team with pipeline generation? You do those two things, you're a genius, and it, and it, it is that simple. I mean, you know, I've, I've been a, a CMO uh, three times over the years, and um, we don't have a CMO at Observe. We're 150 people. Why? Because we don't need one. Um, we're hiring a head of product marketing. I think. Maybe we're a little bit unusual because I always felt, although I've done many jobs over the years, probably what I've been best at is product marketing. I was never a brand marketer or a field marketer. Um, you know, I, I just I didn't enjoy that part of it as much, and I, I, I always used to hire people to do that stuff because I, I wasn't that good at it, and I didn't really want to spend my time there. But what I think I was better than most at is is messaging. And so I I could work on that and observe So you maybe for other companies, a head of product marketing is important. But, um, again, like for me early on, the message is very close to product. Like you, you you have to have someone who can understand the core diffs of the product and translate that into a language that the sales team and, and the customer will, will, will understand, um, find someone who can do both things. Messaging and demand creation, then then I guess you can make them a CMO, but be very careful because most folks that you'll you'll find on LinkedIn that have got a CMO title, when they come in, they might not do just those things initially. You know, there's there's a whole range of things that I think a a CMO likes to go and attack, and uh, it could cost you a lot of money. And by the way, if you don't have the message right and you start going bigger on demand creation, then uh, you're going to end up wasting a lot of money. You know, that, that, to me, that, that was always the fundamental, like get the message, right? Test it with the sales team. Is it differentiated? Okay, great. Now you're ready to amplify it. Um, an undifferentiated message. And, and, and I, I've, I've known people who've gone into that CMO role and when they create the messaging, they, they'll go to an agency. And like a messaging agency. And I'm like, Oh my God. So you don't know the message and now you're talking to some other people who don't like, how's that going to end? Cause they're just going to tell you what they told the last company. And so I'm all for testing messages, right? But you have to have someone in product marketing or in the company who can understand the differentiation of the product and understand that, how, how that translates to a value proposition in front of the customer. Once you've got that, that's what you amplify, then you're going to get the meetings. Why? Because you've got something differentiated. So yeah, marketing, it's it's like be very careful early on. Um, Messaging and demand creation, the two skills are different. It's rare that you get one person who can do both.
1: I just want to talk a little bit more about that whole kind of value, differentiated messaging. Just tell us a little bit about what is, how do you know if you have a differentiated message and what is a a value driven differentiated message compared to a technical differentiation message
2: yeah i mean there's there's features um, which which I view as sort of interesting, but the features are most interesting if you can quantify the difference it's going to make to somebody's everyday job right if if you know if I can make you twice as productive, is that interesting? course it is right but but okay so now i've quantified a difference so quantifiable uh value proposition is is key um how much better is your life going to be with my product don't tell me about the features tell me what's the benefit of the of the features and and then look ideally a little bit later if there are other customers that have gotten those benefits um what's their story. And I I think salespeople in general, they like to tell customer stories. And the best kind of customer story is one that has a quantifiable benefit. And then, and I think this is why salespeople are wide this way, is then then they don't have to get into the technical nitty-gritty of the feature. right? I, I don't want to explain this feature to you, Mr. Customer, because I'm not an engineer. But if I tell you the benefit of it, then maybe I don't need to because it solves the the pain point of the problem that you have today and i think all too often we get we get into the arcane details of the feature and how cool it is and we forget um why the customer cares why should they care that all sounds cool but why do i care um and uh, i think a, like a good product marketer is capable of 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 understanding both ends of that you, you know both um the dip, the i'm 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 not afraid to go to engineering or product management um, and find out the core diff, um, understand why or how it maps to pain points that maybe that the salespeople are seeing and, and and sort of put the two together in a in an easy to understand way. And I think that it you know that is the job. But quantifiable value proposition, it, it it's so much more powerful and endlessly talking about features.
1: Yeah. So it's really interesting that You've, you've kind of alluded to the fact that marketing, the relationship between marketing should be working in tandem with sales. What we do tend to find is a lot of kind of early stage startups, they actually start with a marketing function first before they even invest in in sales. What what do you say to that? I would not. I would not do that. Um,
2: here's why is, um, you know, marketing... It is, um, you know, it's a it's a it's a one to many game, meaning um, you're you you amplifying something and you're you're hoping to reach many people through a single channel and then create some inbound. And um, but a lot of those interactions via marketing are are, are impersonal, and um, I, I feel like you it's harder to get signal. Like is what I'm saying, actually correct, and and sort of before you know that what you're saying is correct, you're amplifying it, which to me seems like the wrong way around. If if you get a good sales leader, um, and and I'm I'm a big fan of like the player coach model, like Keith, our CRO, he's the CRO, but he sells. Like you know, there are very few better in the company at selling observe than Keith, and and so he can look at a customer in the eye on a zoom and he knows whether the message is working or not. And the signal is immediate. And then the next one, and, and I think this, this is the process of iteration that you've got to go through when testing the message. And I, I, I would always say like a, a skilled salesperson who can find pain and then try the message out in terms of how does my thing solve your pain you, you're gonna get a like a much tighter feedback loop. And by the way, it really doesn't cost you any money to do that. Um and when you've got it right, when you feel like you've got something, okay, I, I think that's the time for marketing. Like we know that this works to this kind of a buyer. Let's put some money behind that and go bigger with it. And then we'll probably get a better response rate on our campaign.
1: Yes, obviously, a lot of founders try and lead with founder-led sales, right? They try and go and get those customers first. They're obviously wanting to get some sort of brand or some sort of pipeline generation going in that instance. What what, what are the best ways, you know, if, if you are in that situation, what are the best steps that you can take to really go and be able to, to kind of tackle those first few deals And what are the first steps in that, in your opinion?
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, it's funny when I always worked at bigger companies and I I, I never used to use LinkedIn at all, right? (laughs) I was like, "Eh, if somebody needs me, they'll find me. Uh, And now I use it all the time. And and I think your network is precious. And and if I have one regret, if you like, uh, many, many regrets in the, in the, in the in my, in my career, you, you know, you, you, when you analyze what you did earlier in your career, I think everybody saw shudders and, and think, why the hell did I do that? But I think one of the things that is, is super important is, is keep in touch with people, build a network. It's never been easier to keep in touch with people. And when you're at the, a bigger organization, and people come to you, it's easy to feel like, oh well, my networks, the people in the company, I don't, I don't need to spend time on that. I don't need to invest time in that. But when you need it, you really, really need it. And I, and I wish I'd kept in touch with with more people. And there's the certain folks that I've met You in know, my career. I always, I always think of, of Joe Tucci at EMC. He, he's not not just an amazing guy. He knew everybody. And the reason was he works hard at keeping in touch with people. He carves time out every week to keep in touch. And that, that is a, a great skill, not just for salespeople, but for anyone. Um, because that network then, you, you know, yes, obviously your friends and family are going to be on there. And certainly, you you know, you, you can have them take your product, but they're going to know people as well. And so you get reach through that network. And that that's like a warm introduction is still the best way to enter a company and and get them interested in something that you're doing. And, uh, you know, so I, I would say, you know, the early founder led sales go, go through the people, you know, um, I I would be, although it always sounds tempting to get someone to run up your product in their private environment and give you feedback. That's not it. Um, you've got to be able to sell and, and, and if it's someone that, you know, they'll, they'll give you probably good feedback on what you're saying. They'll probably be. You know, honest, if it's hitting the mark or not. Which you know, when you when you reach it, like a, a general prospect, that they're uh, they're not maybe going to give you feedback on the message. They're just going to not call you back. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I'd say use your network. Um, I, I think LinkedIn is a wonderful tool. I use it all the time. I've never begged so much in my life, and it is the <laughs> the tool of choice for begging. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Jeremy, I think we've talked quite a lot about lots of the challenges and the, you know, early stage founders and even yourself experience in, you know, in bringing a new product to market or disrupting an existing market. And I think we've got to be fairly sympathetic to, you know, your typical profile of what is a first time founder, somebody in their, you know, mid to early th- 20s, um, you know, little to no experience. Um Then you put the pressure of, when we talk about venture capitalists and the advice that they're giving, do you think the system in itself in its current state is, is working or do you think it's broken?
2: (laughs) Oh, that's a great question. I, um, it works. Look at the value created, right? And it, it works, right? It does. It's flawed. I mean, and when money supply is free and easy it's more flawed. Like the last couple, couple, three years, I mean, look at the valuations we were staring down a couple of years ago. That, that's the flaw in the system, right? Um, anybody who's had a decent exit in tech decides they want to be a VC, they invest a bit of money and in a good market, they, they might make a bit and convince themselves they're a, a genius. And then they go put thought leader on their LinkedIn and, um, <laughs> And, and uh, you know, that's the end of that. Um, but no, I, 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 it is flawed, but I, but, it, but it works. And I, I, I look at, I mean, the, the, I mean, Mike Spicer at Sutter Hill, right? I, I, I feel very privileged to have him as an investor, right? Uh, um, I try not to beg Mike for money too often, but he gives us money. Mike was the guy 20 years ago I was given a pay rise to, right? He was my head of product management. So, and, and this is the beautiful thing about, uh, the venture community and Silicon Valley and tech in general, which I've, I've been enamored with for, for the best part of 30 years, which is um, there's a lot of risk takers. They've benefited from people betting on them, and now they're betting on people like them coming up through the ranks. Um, and so I think it's all too easy to, to pick at the, the flaws um, in the system, of which there are many. Um, but I, I look at the the value that is created by tech companies, and look at Silicon Valley and how it reinvents itself, and you know look at the the US's dominance of the tech industry, and most of it is driven out of Silicon Valley. And you know if there's ever a definition of a working industry, this is it, and it's been that way my entire career. And I, you know I, I do feel like very privileged to be a part of it, and and the there are very few industries that you can go into today where you can be in the right place at the right time and you can make a million bucks you can make life-changing money there's very few industries like that um maybe i know entertainment business you could be a um a prodigy movie star macaulay culkin or whatever right i mean it, it does happen in other industries but in the tech industries it happens a lot right there are a lot of people that have made a lot of money. Um sometimes, maybe despite themselves, but um you know to to me that that is the ultimate gauge of whether something is successful did did it generate a return for investors and everyone who holds stock in the company essentially is an investor and the the answer i think is a resounded yes so um but yeah i i i i'm a little bit maybe maybe because of the gray hairs i i mean I've sat on quite a few boards <laughs> i 've seen a lot of v c s in action um like like any uh, walk of life, there are good and there are not so good. And mm. the hard thing, particularly for younger founders, I think, is been discerning about what good looks like, um, and what advice should I listen to versus what should I not listen to. And I feel like you've got to establish pretty early on uh, general principles, like. Uh, you, you know, r- rationalize all of the noise down to a, a small set of things that sound like the right thing to do, and 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 tech can be an industry where you you sort of get bamboozled with words and um, uh, cliches. but the basics I think are very simple. Uh, and I think the the great founders that I've met over the years they've got that locked and loaded. There's basic principles that they follow and, you know, they, they, they don't deviate too much from that at all. I mean, uh, and, and as I said earlier, I mean, Mike Spicer, I mean, he, yes, he's a venture capitalist, but he's founded a lot of companies. The Sutter model really is to found companies and hire founding teams in. And he acts and operates like a founder and he's got amazing clarity of thought about what the right and wrong approach is and if you've got that clarity of thought i think it's much easier to navigate what is a very you know often noisy and, and confusing
1: environment so, so my my final question to you jeremy today is, is is one of product market fit i know we've spoken a lot about product but in general there are there's a lot of kind of with With so much noise in the industry with so many so much ups and downs and you think about risk, you think about rewards, you talk about all of those things, a lot of it does distill down to you know product market fit and I just want to take your view if you were to summarize product market fit in the most concise way that you can what what would that what would that what would that look like for you? what is product market fit?
2: for me it's quite it's quite simple i mean if 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 you can generate 750k of new acv per rep um as the starting point and and the following year you can see a path to getting that up to eight nine a million i I think you've got the market fit you you can you can have a early on you you can have a good quarter and 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 hit the you you know the, the the let's say 250k per rep or 200, you know, whatever, somewhere between 200 and 250K. You can do that in an individual quarter, but you won't do it two or three quarters in a row. Um, or you might have a couple of big deals at the end of the year and convince yourself, hey, I've got two reps. I did a million and a half dollars, 750K a rep. I've, I've got market fit. No. <laughs> but in general, um, and, and the reason why I love product market fit in terms of sales productivity is because it's nothing to do with the product. Meaning, It's it's, At the end of the day, building a business is about selling something. And if you can't sell that thing, you don't have a business. And so why not determine market fit in terms of your ability to sell? And you know that once you've got sellers able to come in, get productive, and do the 750K for a year, if if you can keep repeating that, you have a great business. Um, You do, because... The value in these companies is created not in years one, two, three, four. I mean, look, observe, this is our fifth year. Um, there's no value created really at this, this company at this stage. You want the value in years eight, nine, ten. That, that's when you get the five, ten, fifteen, twenty billion dollars uh, evaluation. You'll never get to that if you don't get these formative years right. If you go too soon, if you think you've got it, and you scale the team, and the product's not ready. You'll never get to those kind of valuations. You'll get acquired by someone much earlier because you'll have a bump in the road um, on the growth. So for me, it, it's all about sales productivity. And if your salespeople cannot hit that productivity, um, you know, again, I see a lot about like it, it's maybe the classic cliche you hear in a board meeting. Now we have execution issues. You, you, you know, and, and we'll swap out the sales leader or we, we need different reps. It's never that. Like early on, um, it's always the product, I I, I would say. And, um, and, and so early on, you've got to get the kind of sales leader in who's maybe not just about the number. It, it, it is about getting the product where it needs to be such that later you then can scale. Um, but early on, I'd say pre-market fit, it's almost never the sales leader's fault if you don't have market fit. It's it's always the product, and and this is why again I go back to what I said earlier. If you've got an environment in the company where it's okay for the sales leader to come back and be brutally honest about the state of the product, and you can reason about that, and you can come up with a backlog to to, to fix those problems, then you're well on your way. A number of iterations of that, you, you, you're probably going to get there. Um, and I think though there's a there's a desire to um, you know, we got to grow, um, you know, the, 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 I've heard and seen this, that VCs that, well, if we don't hit X this quarter or this year, then there's no funding next year. Uh, and that can be the kiss of death. You do, you, you, you're going to do stupid things. You, you you're going to go take that maybe bigger deal with that bigger company that's asking for something that's off the beaten path and you're going to divert your engineering team you know, for God knows how long, and then they're not going to be working on the features that are needed to satisfy the requirements of your ICP, right? There is an ideal profile for an initial product. The more you deviate from that, the more your engineering team is going to get sidetracked. That that means you're not going to get the product to the point where it can drive the levels of productivity and sales that you really want. Um, so market fit, again, everyone seems to have their own Definition. I mean, I I feel like, you know, yes, of course, you want your early customers to love the product, Um, but if they love the product, they're going to buy more of it, right? You're going to get upsell. I mean, new ACV can come in new logos, but it can also come in upsells. Well, if they love the product, more people are going to use it. So you're going to get more new ACV that way. So for me, everything comes back to sales productivity. And if your sales team are not productive, your product isn't ready.
1: Great. Incredible. Well, I think this is a, a, a great, sorry.
0: I was just going to ask, I don't think we've necessarily asked the question of where, where Observe Inc are in regards to that product market fit and where you are in your life journey, in, in the business journey. Um, so it'd be interesting to maybe just ask that question yeah, as a final close. question.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's a roller coaster. I mean, when I, when I hired Keith uh, three and a half years ago, he asked me that question how far are you from market fit? I'm like, yeah, maybe six, twelve months. That was three and a half years ago. <laughs> right. And um he's still here, um, I'm glad to say. But we it's fair to say we we could not have gotten to the position that we are today without Keith. Why? Because he's a mature sales leader. Um he knew the job wasn't just about revenue initially. It was about getting the product where we needed to be, and then it was building a, a management team that, that could scale. And he he grinds, like, I mean, you, I, I think you expect maybe sales your sales leader to be a fighter and to grind, but no, like, the amount of rejection that you get early on in a startup, uh, the amount of failure that there is, it's pretty tough to take. You, you've got to, you've got to have a tough exterior and not take it personally. And, um, the, the roller coaster you do have highs along the way. Um, but you, you have lows where you've got to go back to the drawing board and, and rethink. And I, I, I remember one of, one of the board meetings we had, I think it was, uh, I think it was Q2 last year, about a year ago. And, uh, and there was a bunch of things wrong, and 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 anyway, the, the numbers were bad, and and we were putting together the board deck, and Keith's like, man, should we do less numbers this quarter? <laughs> I Meaning, should we should we present less data than we normally do? And he's like, because like, man, there's not a lot of good stuff to talk about. And I'm like, uh, I'm like, but can you explain the bad numbers? Do you know what the problems are? And he's like, yeah, I do. And said, so don't don't be afraid of the numbers. Put the numbers up there. I said, all you've got to fear really is that you don't have a good explanation, or you don't have good rationale for for why we have crappy numbers. And anyway, that was that was the one quarter in the last five where we hadn't hit the sales productivity number, the the two fifty k per rep. But you, you know, you you get um, those are moments of like amazing self doubt, like, am I doing it wrong? Is this fatal? But you, I think you've got to pull it back to no, no, no. It's it's not about the absolute number is telling you something. Like w- what's the story behind the story? That's really what the board want to know. Or if they don't, that's what they should want to know. Because then what they should also want to know is what you're doing about it. And so for me, I feel like this journey to market fit. This idea that you've always got to show to the the board like this nice steady progression and everything's great and. No, it's not that at all. Like you, you've gotta show them the, the the ugliness. They've got and you've gotta show them what you're thinking. Like w- why is that the way it is and, and what are you doing to put it right and when is it, it gonna be right? And um yeah, I, I feel like uh, observe we we've we've been searching for this market fit for a couple of years. I think I think we're very, very close. Um always maybe hedging on declaring victory. Um, but no, I mean, we, we, we hit our annual number just after mid year. So th- things feel pretty good. Um, from that respect, we we know though, we still have a couple more quarters of work to do on the product. Um, we hired a great head of engineering from Stripe, Chi, uh, um, he has got an attention to detail. I, I sort of call it the last mile. Um, we've got the core feature set that we believe we need, but, um, again, productivity, how do we make this repeatable? How do we eliminate friction? It's a game of details and Stripe have got this amazing sort of attention to like developer experience and at every step of the way in in the, in the, like in, in the regular workflows that people do every day, what's the friction, where are people getting hung up and it's a hundred little changes that you would make to the product. And so, I feel like, okay, this guy knows how to get us through that last mile. We can now bet on ramping the sales team because the core feature sets there. I, I know the core feature sets there because the pipeline is huge. The question is, can we convert? And, and conversion is about friction. It, it, it's about, are the customers in the pipeline going to have a great experience with the product? Um, if they do, will we'll conversion rates are going to go through the roof. I feel like okay, then that's that's the breakout that we're all looking for. So, yeah, I, f- I feel like we're we're very close. I think we've got a couple more quarters of work that we've got to do on the product. Um, but look, we're, we're ramping the sales team, and, and that is a sign that you feel like you know where it, 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 it's go time.
0: Incredible! Incredible! Yeah.
1: Great. Uh, so, uh, I think this is a really great time to kind of reflect on some of the things that we've heard. There's certainly been some some um, some profound takeaways from this time with you today, Jeremy. Uh, I, you know, if we were, if I was to kind of summarize the things that really jumped out, was you know, go and and, and meet where your customers where they are. I, I think everything that that you do in in this in this world of SaaS, it's all about. It all starts with understanding the customer and, and really being able to listen to the customer and whether you're you 're developing the product or whether you 're using your sales organization to really give you that feedback it 's essential that you 're able to create these continuous feedback loops in in a very very kind of open transparent and mission driven way which allows you to really kind of navigate and, and calibrate your way through to that kind of product market fit state and you know for 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 all the founders that are listening but also for for sales execs and 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 the vcs and and lots of you know different types of individuals that listen to this podcast i think that this has really really resonated in a in, in a very very profound way so i want to say a huge thank you for taking the time to speak with us today jeremy it's been an absolute pleasure and uh yeah, I want to thank you once more for, uh, for speaking with us today.
2: No, my pleasure. Thanks for the invite.
1: Oh, yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so
0: much for your time today, Jeremy. So to all our listeners, if you've enjoyed the show, please do subscribe to our various channels, iTunes, Spotify, and YouTube. All the links are in the description below. We look forward to welcoming you back for another session soon. Thank you.